Hey, Russ, you ready to start the podcast? I was. And still am. <laughs> This is Getting Down and Wordy. I am Russell Perkle. I am Hannah, and I'm also on the podcast. And on this podcast, we look at some song from uh, English-speaking pop music, and we consider some somehow tangentially related uh, linguistic or etymological or word concept related to that song. Hannah, what did we listen to this week? This week we listened to "As It Was" uh, by Harry Styles. As it was, as it, yeah, as it will be. As it's it one of these were. things. Like uh, someone pointed out, that also is a problem in that movie that came out, like uh, the house with the clock in the wall or whatever, where it's like it's just about <laughs> impossible to remember what exactly the wording is because they're all little function words or whatever. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a bit of a Mandela effect there too. <laughs> yeah, you can tell yeah. me it was anything, just, and I would be like, "It's just begging to be Mandelified." You're absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's the that's the new SEO, you know, or it's like the it's like the anti SEO. It's like uh, search engine mm -hmm. optimization. I mean, like you want something not to be searchable, so you name it something that's really easy to confuse with something else. You know. Oh, clever. But why would he do that? Well, why? I mean, like, I mean, well, what if you're like, you, you have a kid and you just really want to be kind of off the grid or whatever. And so you name your kid mm. something that like is really hard to Google. So people, Tom Jones. you won't come up with, come up and search results much, you know. Okay. Well, uh, Harry Styles, for one, has been coming up on search results for everything very much lately. It's... From uh, his flirtation with Lizzo to uh, he wore a dress on the cover of Vogue and he's been flirting with a lot of uh, non-conformity uh, uh, um, lately and just uh, really embracing his post-One uh, Direction life. Good for him. I mean, um... I know exactly <laughs> two things about him. Like, I suspected he was from One Direction, but I, I don't know why I <laughs> thought that, so... I. I guess I was right. And then uh, I know he did that Watermelon Sugar song. I think. I think that was him. I don't know. I know that was him, but I don't I don't think I've actually heard the song. <laughs> um. <laughs> you, just, you just know it was him because you just read uh, his his blog or something. <laughs> he's got he's got a live I, journal I, you check into every every day to see what's going on. Oh, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just rooting on him. I'm. I'm cheering him on from afar no um i i read a tweet that uh it couldn't possibly just be about eating fruit because nobody talks about eating fruit that passionately yeah yeah and it, is it is it sugar that somehow derived from a watermelon in like a factory process or or it's just sugar you put on a watermelon it's like popcorn salt. Why would you put sugar on a watermelon? Isn't watermelon like famously sweet? Well, I mean, if it's like not quite ripe, maybe. You know, if it's out of season, maybe add some sugar. 
he's eating out of season watermelon. <laughs> Absolutely. That's what the whole song is about. I mean, there's probably some like real like poetic meaning to that. You know, mm. we may have just cracked it. You know, it's like he's like in the middle of winter, like thinking back to his, uh, you know, summer love or whatever, and putting sugar oh, on like a or... really chewy watermelon, you know. Maybe it's about global supply chains and the fact that we can actually have produce at any time of the year, thanks to GMOs. Yeah, sure, could be. Or, like, mm -hmm. it's about climate change and about how, like, you know, all of our um, weather patterns are off and farming is less consistent. So, yeah, yeah like, more difficult <laughs> to predict food brightness. Right. There you go. Yeah. But that's not the song we listen to at all. Activist. <laughs> uh, what about no, this no, song? No, no, we didn't. Did you we hear listened you to, listen to the other song? one. Oh yeah, I listened to it. It was a, it was a very song. It was a very song. Well, it's very sad for sure. I mean, I think uh, the one the one thing saving the song from being itself in depression is that it's got kind of like a jaunty uh, synth keyboard mm. lick that comes in occasionally you know it does he likes to he um the, the little that i know about him and again i'm not a big fan of music but uh the little that i know about uh, harry styles's music is uh he likes to bop and dance um for some reason i always uh picture him associated with the baby shark song <laughs> I don't know why that is actually. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I, well, maybe it's like a timeline thing. Probably came to fame around similar maybe. times. Perhaps. He's got real baby shark energy. Yeah. Yeah. I, speaking of babies, I mean, I will say like, maybe it's just some weird thing as a childless man. But anytime I hear children's voices in like pop media of any kind, I just think they're ghosts. <laughs> so like this uh for me this like little child intro thing just makes it the whole thing seem like haunted i kind of love that like kids are so not a part of your life that you can't even like conceive of a life that like involves them only an afterlife oh yeah like a hell <laughs> <laughs> No, I, 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 um, a hundred percent there with you. I had a night at the hotel a couple weeks, uh, like a week ago that like solidified. I am never having children. <laughs> I feel they like they are always screaming. Yeah. I feel like children should not be in that hotel that you work at. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. Maybe there um, were ghosts and... or soon to be ghosts. There were far too many of them, you guys. Far too many. Whenever you put more than five kids in one room, it's chaos. Yeah, accurate. So, with this song, as it was, I believe it's called, but no one can really say for sure. Um, now I'm doubting myself. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just get the sense generally that it's about he's like thinking about the past and how things were different or better mm -hmm. or, or somehow, you know, there's been some change in, in state, you know, between the past and now. Now, did you get a sense of nostalgia from the song or did you get a sense of evolution? Because um, 
Well, I watched the video, and I know that you like to uh, listen to it. Yeah, I saw the video. Watching the video. Okay. Yeah. So, what was your impression? Well, she has an impression. Was but... it sort of nostalgic, or was it sort of like? Well, I I would uh... say, considering the sound of the song itself, I feel it's nostalgic because it, he sounds sad. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it sounds like he's uh, sad about the pa- about things changing. You know, like uh, mm. just the if it's not that, then I think there's a mismatch between the the lyrics and the music of the song. You know, the, the sound that they mm-hmm. came up with. Um, but I I think he's maybe very vague about what exactly you know he's nostalgic about mm-hmm. or what exactly has changed. So I guess it leaves it open. What do you think? Um, I got kind of a celebratory feel out of it actually. Like uh, uh, it's not the way that it was, and thank goodness be for that because it's getting to be better. Hmm. Well, he doesn't really seem very happy about it. If that's the case. Well, he seems very colorfully dressed about it. That's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. Maybe he just has a very low affect. You know, he's like one of these guys. You can't really see yeah. it in his face or hear it in his voice. Maybe it's like, it's like supposed to be his, uh, you know, joyful, like, uh, like a uh, Spanish, uh, uh, what's the word? Quinceañera. It's like his quinceañera. <laughs> <laughs> And it could just be that I have difficulty understanding British people when they sing. Oh, that's true. Or talk, or mm-hmm. what they're feeling, or just generally, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're kind of... Uh... Yeah, British people, you need to be a little bit more clear with your emotions. Yeah, true. Just like children, mm-hmm. though, I, I, I prefer a life uh, devoid of British people, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> So, of course, with this song, you know, we, as often happens, we went no further than the title and we decided to just generally look at the past tense, you know, because we have this idea of uh, <laughs> how it was or as it was and, and thinking back to a different time. So, you know, and even from this itself, you know, there's a lot to consider about how in language there's a lot of uh, vagary or vagueness to mm-hmm. tense that, you know, has some feeling of um, connecting to our perception. I mean, you know, always in nostalgia, this idea of like, oh, think how good it was, you know, and then you think like, well, when exactly? You know, it's like you're not specifying a time. You're really giving this binary of present bad, past good, or present this way, yeah. past that way, that actually is incredibly generalizing. Oh, very, very. Um, in fact, uh, uh, I did do a little bit of research on the Inkelhart Welso cultural map, which uh, is, uh, uh, we'll get into it, but uh, one of the things that, uh, it's a concept from 2005, so it's a little bit outdated in my opinion. <laughs> uh, back, but... in, back in Pink's days. <laughs> myth, <laughs> mythic extinct creature, Pink. Uh, but it, it, it grades uh, uh, basically clusters of cultures and, and their similar ideologies and uh, attitudes towards certain things uh, on two different um, axes. There's the traditional versus secular rational values, and there is the survival versus self-expression values. 
So um, the traditional versus secu uh, secular rational values is a very um, prominent uh, way to categorize certain cultural attitudes. So uh, traditional, um, you have your attitudes, your cultural attitudes toward religion, obedience versus independence. Um, for some reason, uh, they, well, for some reason, the 2005 reason, uh, they really hammer in um, abortion as a, uh, as a, a fixative point mm -hmm. on that cultural map. Uh, national pride and your attitude toward authority. Mm -hmm. So um, all of those uh, kind of are graded on the uh, traditional versus secular rational values. Uh, and uh, I just thought that it was very interesting that the Inglehart Wetzel cultural map is, of course, cultural map, but it's also uh, a very linguistic. And I thought that would be a kind of... Um, interesting thing to talk about today is cool. whether the language that you speak uh, affects the attitudes that you have yeah sure and you know as we said you know it can possibly have some intersection with our feelings about the past and nostalgia mm -hmm. uh future of course comes in in many ways too like i was thinking well two there's two ideas that came to mind from regular my life that things i just noticed one about the future and one about the the present you know to talk about the future i was thinking about how you know always you have these friends who are like uh i'm on my way or i'm heading there now and you really don't know like are they <laughs> do they mean it in the present sense or are they just giving you some sense of an intention or uh, something they're moving towards doing yeah. you know and it's like well in a way, there's there's really no pure future tense in the English, so it's, it's very difficult to say they're out, outright lying about those things, but it does seem pretty <laughs> misleading. You know? like, it does. I, I've had coworkers whose I'm on my way meant I am literally at home horrible. Uh, in my underwear. I just want to stab those people <laughs> in the face, to be honest. <laughs> in the present, right now. <laughs> In fact, I may have already done it. So in the past. <laughs> Describe your situation you. immediately. Your immediate situation. Yeah. What are you wearing? Are you? What is your mode of transportation? Yeah, and, and I don't know what kind of uh, scale there is psychologically for that, but I'm on the opposite side of the scale where, like, oftentimes I'll be, like, in the car five minutes in my drive to the place before I tell somebody I'm coming there, you know? <laughs> Well, hopefully you don't text and drive, of course. No, of no, course I, not, I text at the never. beginning of the drive. I am about to leave the house. <laughs> I just, uh, I throw like a paper airplane out the window towards <laughs> their destination. That way, it will arrive See, on the wind right before I, I myself get there. So, no. there you go. That's such a perfect method. Yeah, and so like my my whole life philosophy, I think, is anti anticipatory anxiety whatever whatever i can do to reduce that for myself and others you know that's like my akuna matata <laughs> so the other one i'll finish my thought i guess so in present tense i was thinking about how you know we have what generally is called like a present simple or simple present you know i i do this or i work here or i go there or whatever usually it's used to give some sense of something that 
always happens. It has this feeling of like permanence that kind of spreads out in both directions, you know? So like, for instance, someone can say something like, I swim for two hours every day, right? Mm-hmm. You you get the feeling when you hear this that they've always done this and they always will continue to do this, you know? Whereas, I mean... Perpetuity. Yeah, yeah. Whereas really, like, they they may have just started, you know? They might have been doing it for, like, two weeks or something or even a week. And they may have every intention to continue to do it, but, you know, who knows how long it will really continue to happen, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, at least in English, and I, I think it, generally most languages have something like a simple present. You know, it it serves to kind of... It's like, it's interesting how we seem to be prioritizing using language to express and tell people about ourselves to make, to form this kind of biography or image of what we want people to see. This is like a higher Mm -hmm. priority than actually explicitly telling people when things happen, you know? Yeah. Okay. I can see that. Absolutely. Um, but coming back to this, <laughs> uh, tell me again, what is this uh, kind of uh, spectrum or whatever called that you mentioned the before? The Inglehart Weltzel Cultural Map? Blowhart Virtual. Say it again. <laughs> Inglehart Weltzel. Hang on just Inglehart a Weltzel. And you mentioned a connection between you know, the, uh, the cultural considerations or sociological considerations and linguistics. Like, uh, can you give me a sense of what that connection is? Mm-hmm. So uh, there, there are um, certain cultural groups. So uh, the uh, maps that uh, the Inglehart Wetzel cultural map um, keeps track of uh, groups these languages groups these cultures into certain groups that are on this uh, scale um so you have your european languages you have your um your uh, arabic and west african uh, group which tends to uh, to um scale a, a little bit closer to the traditional and the survival as opposed to the secular rational and the self-expression. And on the other end, you have the Protestant European languages and the Protestant European cultures, um, which score on the opposite side around the secular rational and the self-expression. So um, these are uh, all very... Not only are they cultural, of course, they are. Uh, um, they also tend to follow... Um, linguistic barriers which uh, you can argue and it certainly has been argued that uh, linguistic barriers are are very very largely cultural so there is that issue of causation and right uh, which which causes which right yeah i posit that uh language the uh, first language that you speak uh has a significant impact on uh your the way that your brain forms thoughts the way that your um uh the way that your brain just tends to operate and um of course uh, that does tie into a traditional um warfianism uh, hopefully not as strong as 
determinism, linguistic determinism, which I think we can both agree is kind of BS. Uh, but it does, I believe, uh, um, shape the way that we think. Hmm. Uh, and a lot of uh, um, languages that lack this uh, distinct future tense modality, so your English, your German, your Finnish, um, your Chinese, uh, we have a similar way of looking at the future as opposed to people uh, in languages that have a more complex relationship with the future tense such as your Spanish, your Russian. Um, so I kind of wanted to uh, get your your feelings on that aspect. It's a lot there to unpack as, as kids say these Sorry. days. Um, you know, I think it's really incredible this... Uh, Let's see. Bullhart Wetzel uh, effect. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> I got to write Wetzel. these down first before we start these. <laughs> this is not something I researched <laughs> at all. But um, mm. I think these are things that sh must be very hard to objectively measure. You know, how, how um, rational or how traditional a culture is and so on and so forth you know where mm -hmm. how do you make these metrics and how do you how do you measure them but i i don't really doubt them like i i find that thinking about the muslim arabic world i think well obviously they're very uh traditional and religious and, and um mm -hmm. etc I, I would be very curious to know where china lands on that spectrum you know because china seems yeah. Uh, survivalist, but they also seem very um, logical, rational, whatever that side of it was called. Mm -hmm. And yet, they also feel as if they have a lot of traditional um, kind of superstitious elements to their culture, too. And I would say the same mm -hmm. for Russia, too. I mean, obviously, Russia, they um, went through this big period of uh, trying to convert to a more rational logical society and yet i think they're also still very survivalist you know also america Absolutely. i'm curious you have where a america pretty good instinct as far as that goes i'm curious where america falls on the spectrum as well <laughs> do you know so let me pull up the um official inglehart wetzel cultural map so i don't know if you can tell but uh the chinese uh um it is up in uh, the Confucian era, and you're right. Uh, it scores very high on the secular rational um, axis, uh, and it also uh, scores very high on the survival values versus uh, self-expression values. So, um, let's see. We have Islamic, we have African, Latin American. Uh, English speaking is pretty grouped up as self-expression, uh, very high on the self-expression, sort of midway between traditional and secular rational. Yeah. Um, and that includes the U.S., that includes Australia, Canada, U.K. Uh, the English-speaking area is very... Um, it tends to put a uh, uh, an emphasis on self-expression, which I, as a narcissist, uh, appreciate I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm not a narcissist, but uh, I, I definitely love to hear myself talk. Um, yeah. So, uh, uh, 
looking at this cultural map, uh, is there anything that you think that you can infer about policy? Oh, policy in terms of like mm -hmm. what their uh, what their political um, motives are and yeah. so on. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I not even anything so granular, but you like, presume just... that the uh, more secular and rational uh, cultures will have more like scientific research and science-driven mm -hmm. policy. Uh, of course, you would presume the more traditional value ones would have more like less of a separation between religion and state. Uh, survivalism, mm -hmm. of course, you kind of presume that they will. Um, make more <laughs> kind of practical choices you know it's like i, I really feel as if mm. you know of course expression is great but i i think that yeah i don't know but um so yeah that that's what i would generally say like a uh, secular rational probably more scientific peoples and uh okay survival probably has more pragmatism in it you know in their governance Okay, so to get a little bit into the weeds, uh, if we wanted to talk about climate policy, uh, which uh, uh, which of these um, groups would you consider would have uh, the most extreme climate change policies, and which one of them would have the most? Um, I'm trying not to uh, to sway That's you. Sure. Yeah, I would uh, guess that the uh, survivalist rational should have the best climate policy and the opposite should have the mm. worst right the self-expressive traditionalists should have the worst right so uh it turns out that uh the uh, secular rational scoring high on the secular rational and self-expression actually so uh protestant europe uh we're talking your sweden your denmark denmark has the most uh ambitious and the most comprehensive uh, climate change policy in the world and uh, the most effective per capita. So um, that area, uh, that self-expression, uh, uh, where self-expression meets um, secular rational, that is about where uh, the most forward-thinking um, climate change policy comes from. Uh Alternatively, the, that traditional area, that uh, Islamic, Africa, uh, more the Orthodox as well, uh, they tend to be a little bit more guarded as, as, as um, uh, like Kenya and India, uh, they both uh, have not joined the climate, climate Paris, the Paris climate accord. I'm trying to right? find India. Oh, yeah. Uh, now I see it. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. India survivalist and secular rational. Yeah, like Vietnam, India, Cyprus, they're right in the middle right there. Um, I don't even think that they uh, have a name. They're just middle of the road. Uh, but uh, that, that particular group tends not to set very high expectations, and yet they exceed them. Mm -hmm. So per capita, India and Kenya, um, they have not joined the Paris Climate Accords. Uh, and yet they are the only ones, it seems, that are on track to uh, uh, reduce their carbon emissions uh, in any kind of substantial way. 
Whereas on the other side, especially in the English-speaking side, uh, you have your Canada, your UK, your America. Um, we all set pretty big uh, goals and expectations, and we have uh, no way of meeting them. Mm. And I don't know if that is because of the... Well, I don't know if that is because, but I do posit that it is because of our relationship with the future, or at least it is affected by our relationship with the future. Uh, the way that we think of planning, uh, um, not having that uh, future modality, not having any kind of uh, linguistic relationship with the future tense other than will, shall, um... I feel like it sort of um, distances ourselves from the reality in a way that makes us non-culpable, that makes us uh, non-responsible in a way uh, for the results of our actions. For me, I, I think to... it's that's a pretty big reach. Like, um, mm -hmm. actually, Finland, which is up there in the uh, Protestant Europe the self-expressions rational, they're basically in the same situation as us. They don't have like a, a morphological future tense. They just use mm -hmm. other words for markers. And like the, the, uh, the article that I read about the climate change policy, it was just totally confused about the whole thing. Like it put the mm -hmm. English language in the languages that do have a future tense marker. And so it was actually arguing that the languages without a future tense tend to think of the future as being connected to the present more directly. Mm -hmm. And so they are the ones better at climate change. Uh, so it's, for me, I think that it's honestly just incredibly complex and confusing where I, I think it's hard to make any really clear um, designations okay. between one and the other, you know. And I, I will sense. say another thing is like when we were looking at the uh, the alphabet last week, you know, like um, mm -hmm. in uh, one of the things that I, I found that was very interesting is this this idea of like the alphabet leading to uh, more abstract thought. You know, this idea that okay, you've got a language that's um requires you to think abstractly about the connection between sounds and words in order to um learn to speak and so this kind of gives you a lot of practice for abstraction you know their their argument was that um if you look at china whereas we had lots of like um kind of conceptual and philosophical scientific advancements china only had like very practical ones and why is that you know, but mm -hmm. I think that this is a very uh, racist statement. You know, it's like, what is this yeah. distinction between science that's somehow high minded and science that's just for practical purposes? I, th I think it's totally nonsense. And, and I think oftentimes mm -hmm. when you read a study about those kinds of um, cultural differences, like the same thing as this uh, wharf guy whose whole name will maybe we should say it now since we first started talking about him so one of the early uh uh thinkers about linguistic relativity was um 
Worf. Worf. <laughs> that's fine. He's not a Star Trek character, although he sounds like one. Uh, <laughs> let's see. What is this guy's whole name? Uh, Benjamin Lee Worf, born in 1897, mm. died in 1941. And, you know, his, you get this really similar feeling of, like, um, English and these Western languages are different in ways that they're more rational and more correct. And the native or more smaller or less white languages if they're better it's in the way of like the noble savage right this like wise simplicity uh mm -hmm. type feeling to it and and always kind of just put a put a lot of uh scrutiny towards you know any kind of concept that describes that kind of thing a because of course even to even that. to make those distinctions you have to do a lot of generalizing you know it's like to say that a mm -hmm. whole country is traditional of course you have to say most of the people there are like that or enough of the people there are like that to say that the whole country is like that which of course discounts all of these you know individualistic differences you know right okay so just because a culture has a very um rational language a plus b equals c doesn't mean that that culture is incapable of producing um philosophers and artists yeah and, and i mean I, I question if even any languages are particularly more rational than others you know okay like um steven pinker the the linguist um and i, I guess chomsky too seemingly like th they just kind of have this sense that we sort of somehow we're born with a blueprint blueprint for language and all of the languages that we end up inventing are more or less similar mm -hmm. you know it's like they they may differ in the details of how they do something but they essentially do all the same things you know it's like even this this mm -hmm. idea that some languages have a future tense and past tense and some don't it's it's a little silly of course because all languages have some way to tell you that something's in the future or something's in the past it's just some of them happen to do it with words that aren't a part of the verb and some happen to do it with changes to the single word you know okay so i will uh i will hear that and i will raise you a situation mm -hmm. um uh the brown and lenenberg um color perception test yeah yeah it's a great so, point um yeah, yeah. So uh, the way that the, the Brown-Lennonberg uh, um, perception test worked is uh, basically they would go to uh, this, uh, uh, go, they used the color blue. Um, the, uh, the study that I read, and I read this back in college, so uh, correct me if I, uh, <clears throat> correct me if I uh, go off the rails or if I misinterpret something. Um is uh the Lennonberg and Brown were two uh linguists or, or linguists or anthropologists that went to Africa uh where there's not a whole lot of occasion to differentiate the uh, color blue like there's not a whole lot of um blue anything there so uh when they would bring out these different uh shades of blue uh, for the um, people to differentiate between, and it was uh, a timed test. Uh, 
they would be given like uh, 12 shades of the color blue and you, uh, you or two shades of the color blue you'd have to pick out the odd one out out of 12 squares it took a significantly longer time um, for uh, an African uh, person to pick out the odd blue out than it did for, say, somebody who grew up on the ocean or um, on, uh, uh, in Europe or something. Whereas the, um, the African uh, tribes that they uh, interviewed were very, very good at picking out um, the odd green out. So... Uh, it's not, uh, again, you could argue that this is more growing up than it is linguistics, but I would argue that having a word for it, having a word for this experience makes it easier for you to pick it out. It's easier for you to recognize it, makes it easier for you to conceptualize it. So all of these different shades of blue, it's not that you don't see the different shades of blue it's that you just can't recognize it because you don't have a word for it it does make a lot of intuitive sense like it, it just feels right and of course again similar to this um kind of graph that we were looking at earlier the Engelhart graph mm -hmm. um it's hard to say okay is it because they don't have a color for blue or is it because they lived in a uh, in an environment where they didn't have much occasion to need to see a lot of blue or differentiate blue. And so both the lack of a word and the lack of really a firm concept both come from their experiences in life, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so it, it's a little tricky. Um, you know, though, the thing that I always think about that really makes me think, okay, yeah, the color thing, there's really something there is that, you know, we have this idea of pink, you know. So, yes. I mean, as a child, you really have to be it told. It always comes back to pink. You really have to be told it's a different color. Like, I had no idea pink was just light red, you know. And and even I would say orange, dark orange is brown. If you, if you ever tried <laughs> to paint and you add a little black paint to your orange, indistinguishable from any other brown. You know, but no one Absolutely. thinks, this, you know, no one, no one thinks, okay, brown is dark orange, you know, and even there's a lot of pushback if you, if you say it, you know, they say, no, brown is like, if Especially you mix all for the colors, hunters, yeah. but it's definitely looks like brown. I, I would say that makes it brown, you know, um, maybe mm -hmm. if we had a different word for dark orange, maybe we would think differently about it. I don't know. Or maybe that is why we think differently about it. I don't know. But yeah, I mean. <laughs> It's a, that's a very convincing thing, you know, that pink looks different from red because there's a different word that isn't light red or something. When I see a light green thing, I don't think, okay, that's not green, that's light green, you know, because it still has that word green in it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think I, I'm going to just hammer in that I do think that that it does have to do with language. Mm -hmm. that that uh you're that language that you grow up with that first language is the reason that your brain thinks like that when it forms those neuro neurotic um connections uh, uh that's what it does and of course you can expand your worldview by learning other languages by learning other colors by uh um by you know 
expanding your vocabulary a little bit. Uh, but ultimately, that has been uh, cemented in your brain when you first started forming thoughts. Maybe and I true. think that that is how... Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I, I wonder how much our feeling that pink is so separate from red comes from this uh, history of pink is for girls, you know? Because, like, they, they had this idea mm. first that blue was for boys, and then they said, okay, what's the opposite of blue? And at the time, they thought red was the opposite of blue. I, I guess some people still conceptualize it that way in some context. But they thought, well, red's too strong. You know, you can't, it's like, you can't put a baby girl in, like, a red, you know, onesie. It's just crazy. It's like she's, like, a... Like she's gonna like uh, become the fascist <laughs> dictatress of a country or something, but uh, so they yeah, thought, so okay, what we'll, if I we'll told make you it that it used to be opposite. Make it a yeah, it's true too. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll mm -hmm. make it a lighter color here, and yeah, it's true. At some point, it got kind of flipped, but for for whatever reason, now it is what it is, and, and I think like we associate this color pink with girls, and you know, there's so much. Uh, discrimination against girliness, you know, the, the same that we saw yeah. with the naming thing, where it's like the last thing in the world a parent would do is give a boy child a girl's name, such that whenever a name becomes mm -hmm. popular for girls, it stops being a boy's name, you know. Like Shirley or, or Jordan, Stacy, no. Kelly. Yeah, yeah, sure. Lots of things. And um, so I, I do one, and again, it's like, well, now you're in a situation where. There's a cultural reason that we really see pink as different from red. Does it is that the same stem that both of these things come from? But then you do have to say, well, okay, but we're not. You don't tell. You don't sit your kid down and tell them the history of the origin of pink. You just tell them the word pink, and and then that word somehow carries the whole cultural uh, hangover you know hang-ups oh man so maybe it's true yeah how great would it be if all of the, like these gender reveal parties involved like a, a discussion on <laughs> the cultural significance of, of gender uh, oh yeah thinking. that's great now they, they like sit you down now, okay now let us tell you why we have this social construct of gender and they brought like a professor and he's got like the circular glasses <laughs> and the elbow patches <laughs> You know, and then at the end of the press professor's um, uh, lecture, they just like poke the professor with a pen, and he explodes, and he's whatever color the baby is. You know? He's all red inside. Oh yeah, yeah, he's all red. <laughs> <laughs> Your baby's a beast, <laughs> or something. I don't know what red is. <laughs> Your baby's a communist. <laughs> but so. I just hope my baby is a paladin. <laughs> Don't we all? So one thing uh, <laughs> Pinker points out about this idea of language, or, for, or colors in language. Well, first of all, you know, it's very, very true that not all languages have all colors. You know, languages really differ in complexity. And so simpler languages usually have less colors. But they develop along the same lines, actually. So languages, the simplest, have a black and a white, or in other words, a dark mm -hmm. and a light, right? Uh, the next color that tends to come in is red. Uh, then after that, generally, like, blue will be next, and the uh, yellow, and then after that, the other colors kind of come in, mm. right? But he points out that, okay, yeah, it takes a little longer a little more mental effort for um, 
people in la in languages, speaking languages that don't have all these colors to pick them out, to remember them, whatever. But it's still possible for them to do so. So it's a pretty weak result, in his opinion. Um, mm -hmm. But the one thing he points out that I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that's also a good point is, you know, of course, color is a spectrum. You know, it's kind of uh, yep. in, in reality, there's no distinctions. There's no hard lines there. But it's a rainbow, sure. if you will. <laughs> yeah, it's a rainbow, and it's a rainbow where actually there aren't these like big jumps from one band to the next, you know. But right. people tend to name colors at the same general points in the spectrum. So it's like our color red lines up perfectly with the Spanish color rojo, you know, or whatever. Um and of course, this is because of biology. You know, we have cones and rods in our mm -hmm. eyes that, um, you know, determine what, where the color lines are for us. You know, where where in the spectrum right. do we notice it the best? You know, um, and so, in reality, our colors are more just a result of our ability to perceive them, and. For the most part, everyone ends up with the same colors, except for just a few exceptions here and there, you know. Uh-huh. So to that end, I kind of wanted to um, present you with some, well, not colors, but experiences, uh, human experiences that I think everybody has had that they just don't recognize as being universal because we don't have a name for it in English. Cool. Um. So, uh, let's start with uh, the Tagalog word. It says giggle. Uh, uh, yeah, giggle. Uh, which means uh, overwhelming cuteness. So, something that is so cute that you have to squish it and hug it. And you just have to... Uh, uh, well, we have a concept of cuteness aggression. But <laughs> yeah, uh, it's true. more of this... Anything that makes you go, oh, that's so adorable. Like that is giggle in Yeah, or like uh I don't know if you ever had any like weird old ants that would just tell you when you're a kid you're so cute they wanted to eat you up or something. It yes. really profoundly disturbed me because I didn't have a really good sense of like uh whatever the opposite of literal <laughs> communication was when I was a kid, so <laughs> really, really upset me every time. Oh my gosh! Yeah, uh, my my uh, my mom is very prone to cute aggression, uh, and she was very prone to cute aggression when I was a kid. Um, she used to do this uh, thing where uh, she would put her mouth over your nose and just blow, <laughs> just like like that. That's not an instinct, right? Like I've never thought something is so cute that I just have to puff out its cheeks. <laughs> so no i've never but, uh, heard of that before <laughs> sounds traumatizing but, uh, it, <laughs> um it is uh, but that is a good example of giggle um yeah let's great see. uh there is okay uh mencolic is an indonesian word uh, an Indonesian word for tapping somebody on the opposite shoulder in order to get their attention. <laughs> Not on the same shoulder, sure, on the opposite sure. shoulder. So it's it's got that. But it's like in order of... to trick them, like as a prank, or yeah, okay. just as yeah. a playful yeah. sort of. It's such a universal yeah. uh, thing. Everybody does it. 
that I know I've done that before. I didn't have a word for it. I would now. I do. Hannah, I would never do some something like that to somebody. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you, you would stoop live to that. More honestly than I do. <laughs> okay. 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 Oh, this one you'll know, uh, or this one you'll probably understand a little bit. Pena uh, ajena is a Spanish word. No, uh, I don't know. And it's uh it's pretty similar to the German word Fremdschaman. I don't know um, that. Or either. the Dutch word Fremdschaman. Um, I get this a lot when I watch The Office. Um, a cringe feeling? It's Exactly, uh-huh. exactly. It's that feeling of embarrassment on somebody else's behalf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, we kind of have it now in, in form of cringe, I guess, so... But I guess you could argue sort of. that, that cringe has other meanings as well. It can mean just the literal mm-hmm. feeling of like almost like flinch. It has kind of a closeness to flinch in its original meaning. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, could, I could see it as you could argue that it's not quite as uh, precise as these other words. Yeah, um, we also have uh, the Swedish word lagom, uh, which is the exact right amount. Oh. So when you pour a perfect pint, when you uh, when you um, are the exact amount of right amount of warm and cozy, um, when your cat is exactly full, mm-hmm. like that that exact full that exact right amount is lagum. Um, I don't think we have a concept for it in English. Not other in than... a single word, of course. Would be a great like. I'm sure there must be some business, like some company who's named themselves that, you know, snack company yeah. or whatever. Oh, it would be Swedish, wouldn't it? Like not overindulgent, but uh, also not too um, Spartan. Mm, Just yeah. enough. Um, Backpfeifengesicht is probably one of my favorite German words ever. Do what now? Um, Back five fingers ish. Back is... five fingers ish. Yes. Is it? Does it? Whenever you uh, have it... to step back about five finger lengths. <laughs> Very nearly. Uh, back five fingers ish is uh, a face that deserves a fist. <laughs> sure. We say like a or, punchable uh, face. Literally a face in need of a slap. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um and. Okay, uh, let's see. I've got two more. I've got uh, rasbliudo is a Russian word um, for uh, feelings for somebody that you used to love but no longer do, which is just the most Russian concept, I think. Feelings for somebody you used to love but no longer do. Ah, yeah, so interesting. Oh, it mm-hmm. sounds like French, too. <laughs> just the idea of it. It know. does sound kind of French. <laughs> Although, I think in French you would still have... Uh, well, no, I, I'm not going to make that determination. No, yeah, that that uh, that seems like a concept that would have to come out of a uh, uh, a Russian culture or a French culture. Sure, great. But it's something that everybody has some sort of familiarity mm-hmm. with. It's just that we don't have a word for it. Uh, and one of my favorites is turtle, which is. A Scottish term for uh, when you are introducing somebody and you pause because you can't remember their name. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Yeah. But, you know, to come back to uh, 
Steven Pinker's point, like obviously we can express these concepts, we just don't tend to use a single word, you know. And I, I think that's the big counter to linguistic determinism and, and to a lesser extent to linguistic relativity, kind of the the um, lukewarm version. But interesting term though, because actually when they the reason they chose this word relativity here, you would assume it's somehow connected to like relativism or, or something like that. But actually they had this idea that it should be as important to linguistics as uh, Einstein's theory of relativity was to physics, right? So they thought they kind of found something that would sort of uh, unlock the key to the linguistics universe, you know. But, you know, we definitely have the ability to think about things, to experience things that we don't have a word for, you know. For, for one thing, obviously, otherwise it would be impossible to ever make a new word, you know. And, you know, I think about food oftentimes where it's like, yeah, we have some words for tastes, you know, but oftentimes you taste something and you don't exactly have a word or know the word or whatever, you know. So I, I think there's lots yeah. of experiences where if we do, if we don't have a single word, we can tend to describe it in a set of words. Um, can you think of an example? <laughs> well, let's see. I, I don't know if I have an example for you, but uh, an interesting thing that, again, Steven Pinker brings up about this concept is that um, children that are born into a culture that has like a pigeon language, right? So um, happened mm -hmm. in, um, you know, former slave cool, cool. Or, or slave communities, oh, you know? okay. Not pigeon, pigeon. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> pigeon, P-I-D-G-I-N, J-I-N? J-I-N, I think. Um, in the first generation of speakers of this language where they're adults, you know, oftentimes what happens is mm -hmm. uh, they'll come to a new place, uh, they form a community, they don't really have their a shared language yet, so they kind of work one mm -hmm. out, you know, so they're kind of picking up some things from the local language, they're picking up some things from the language, uh, their own native languages that they can kind of make each other understand. And you end up with a language that's very crude and very simple and doesn't have a lot of grammar and just, you know, it doesn't do the job of communicating perfectly, you know. Well, right. he found that or researchers generally have found that within one generation, as soon as children are born, into this language, um, they basically create the grammar and they create a lot of the nuance of expression, right? And they do this by doubling words, by putting new affixes, new endings on words, um, co combining two words together in weird different ways, right? Mm -hmm. And this is, of course, generally how language happens, you know, all the, um, all the affixes, as in, you know, suffixes, prefixes, parts that are put onto a word, were, of course, originally separate words, you know, so, so these eventually just kind of get joined to the word itself. And so, to me, I think that that, that kind of gives this feeling that 
this, you know, this like Orwellian idea of like a new speak of like using language as a control or a prison to limit what people can think, you know, it's in, in reality, it's probably would not be very effective, you know. Hmm. That makes uh, that um, calls to mind. <clears throat> Do you remember Alex the talking parrot? Is this someone we knew? Do we play D and D with uh, Alex? Maybe <laughs> you talk about him like he's an uh, old friend. <laughs> sorry, no, no. Uh, uh, in uh, uh, in the development of linguistics, it was a pretty exciting uh, period. Uh, uh, Alex was an African gray parrot uh, that uh, his trainer had taught to speak. Um, using English words, uh, and he started to come up with concepts uh, and inventing concepts uh, using the words that he had, even if he didn't necessarily have them. So, uh, for example, he called um, apples um, uh, banaries oh. because to him they looked like cherries but tasted like bananas. <laughs> that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, similarly, um, this... Uh... In many languages, the word for tomato, uh, it was originally something like wolf apple. I don't know why, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Not as satisfying a story as the parrot story. But, yeah, I mean, we see that all the time. Like, words oftentimes come from mm -hmm. combinations of other words. Pineapple, of course, also. Just an apple yeah. that looks a bit like pine. <laughs> Pomme de terre, apple of the apple earth. Of the earth. Potato. So, uh, the whole language is apple, seems like. just so, It's just like a <laughs> it's six apples degrees. apples all the way down. Yeah, it's a six degrees of Kevin Bacon, except you're describing how unlike something an apple is. You know? It's apples to apples, man. <laughs> yeah. This thing is five degrees different from an apple, so we'll classify it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but, so... I guess just mentioning a few things that just that didn't really fit into our discussion anywhere so far. So uh, in English, as we've talked about, we have a past tense. Uh, we have a present tense or something that's sometimes called just non-present because we use it for future as well. You know, And of course, you know that, but many people don't really notice. You know, when you're in school, you're kind of taught that will is the future. So I will go for future, right? Um but, of course, two things about that. One is that will is its a separate word, and, and it has a meaning. Uh, we talked about it a lot back in our episode about uh, the word China, you know, when we were talking about Skate oh, by yeah. Bruno Mars. Like, it, There's this kind of thing that seems to happen in English where words connected to intention or forward movement just kind of become future tense indicators over time and so will of course originally uh -huh. meant to will something to happen or you're willing to do something and we can even see there's still a lot of um, present usage of will too like you can say like uh, mm -hmm. man when he gets home from work he will just lay on the couch and fall right to sleep you know and you're not saying he will do it in the future you're not making a prediction you're just talking about his tendency or something you know yeah so future uh, English, we talk about as having a past. We talk about as having a non-present, non-past, sorry, non-past. Uh, there are actually a few languages that have future and non-future. So they have a clear, distinctive future, and their past and present are just 
the same, right? With some indicators okay. outside of the words themselves. Most of them are pretty small. The only one that seemed really uh, recognizable to me is Greenlandic, right? Because we know, of course, where Greenland is. Other ones are Rukai, yeah. Quechua, Yabam, and Nifka. Um, but anyways, uh, English specifically, uh, we have a very interesting history of the past tense too because actually as we talked about before many things start out as separate words um, then they become what are called clitics which means it's a word that um, doesn't really mean much by itself it only can mean something connected to another word so most of our auxiliary mm. verbs are this um, are like the word much sure yeah I get so like, personally offended when somebody says, thank you much. <laughs> Why offended? I'm sorry. Uh, 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 much is a word that needs to be modified, I think. Nah, come on, thank I got to streamline this, baby. Thank you so much. Too yeah, many unneeded on, words. No. Oh, no. Oh, it pisses me off. <laughs> I mean, I know they're being polite. Would you say, would you say it pisses you polite. off much? Ah! <sighs> It pisses much off. Pisses me off muchly. <laughs> so, uh, in English, we have uh, two past tense kind of strategies for forming it. You know, we have uh, <laughs> the ed form uh, on the end of words. And this actually um, is the later one. Uh, these ones okay. with just really? a, some kind of a form change. These are the more original ones. So, this was back when we were more purely Germanic language. Uh, this was a strategy that was used then to make the past tense. So a lot of them are vowel shifts, vowel changes, you know. Mm. Uh, so we see something like uh, come, came, right? So one of the vowels changes. And this, you know, this looks a lot like a lot of other languages, right? I mean, um, Spanish certainly swim, has a, swim. does everything with vowel changes, you know. Um, oh, really? As far as tense goes, sure. Uh, and um, the essentially, so we had this, we had this kind of uh, Germanic style. Uh, of course, England was an island, so things kind of developed and calcified. You know, both of those things. So they separated from the mainland, and then when the uh, Norse invasions, kind of these Viking uh, invaders or settlers or uh, traders, depending on which history you look at came in they had actually kind of <laughs> changed the way they tended to make the pass and they would they would use a actually a word that was basically did you know so uh we had this form of uh putting a did after the verb to make it past tense and so this eventually became just a ud or a duh or ta right um oh but also of course it survives in our questions right so questions uh -huh. oftentimes we make with some sort of inversion so we say like uh you are ready is the statement are you ready is the question so the same thing kind of happens with the past tense too so did you walk right i walked uh-huh and so oh this one okay that makes sense a lot simpler to use you know a lot more flexible you can pretty easily turn a word into the past tense this way so most of the newer words that came into the language uh, just took this 
ending, took this strategy. So if it was a word coming in from French, of course, we got a lot of French um, or Gallic um, language coming over later on. And also, it eventually just kind of took over for many of the original words, too. So we used to have many, many, many more irregular, as we call it. Also, in a lot of linguistic terms, it's also often called the strong verb tense. Um, just because it was simpler and it tended to replace them. But the interesting thing is our 10 or so most common verbs, you know, things like uh, be and, and do and have, these are generally still irregular, you know. Uh, because yeah. if it's a word that you don't use very much, <clears throat> it, it's much easier for people to forget the form of that and make a change and other people don't notice, you know. And so these ones, they're, they're less firm in our, in our lexicon, you know. But these words that we use every day, it would sound mm. very strange to suddenly say it differently. You know, these mistakes are much more noticeable to us. So this kind of uh, evolution just will probably never happen with them. You know, we'll probably never say, I halved a car, but I sold it or something. Well, or I sell uh, it. <laughs> if we wanted to tie it back into uh, kids, and once the kids get a hold of language, uh, they try to make it make sense. They try to make it uh, more logical. You do hear a lot of, uh, I halved a yeah, sandwich. Sure. Or or I uh, I swimmed today, or uh, they try to make it logical. Absolutely. They ignore that. Yeah, um, and I think this is where the changes come most of the time. Yeah, and you know, it's like if it's a word that they often encounter adults saying in a different way, eventually they'll relearn it the right way. But if it's a word that mm -hmm. they very rarely hear anybody say, you know, it's less likely that they will correct it. You know. Mm hmm. I mean, I think we all have some that we... I know every time I try to think of the past tense of sneak, I have no idea. Is it sneaked or snuck? I don't know. Snuck. I think sure it's snuck. I think maybe it used snuck to be around. snuck. Or snucked. It used to be snuck, but I think now it's it's <laughs> uh, kind of fallen away. I think it depends if you're playing a rogue or a ranger. <laughs> Or if you're playing a ranger sneaked, or if you're playing rogues. Scrabble and you really need that, that ED. So there's so much to say, honestly. But uh, I think unless you have anything else to add, we can probably continue on to the next segment. No, let's let's do let's continue let's on it. to the next segment because the next segment is about. The American Song Contest. <laughs> I always think of, I had to. I had to relook up what the actual name of it was to to watch the songs. Today. Mm -hmm. I always think of it I as know, a I know. <laughs> Which it basically is. Well, um, hopefully the next iteration will be a little bit more true to the Eurovision um, origins. Where do you feel it falls know, short? The hosting, I think. <laughs> yeah. uh, I love Snoop Dogg for what he is and uh, what he continues to be, you know. Uh, murderer, drug dealer, uh, rapper, beloved children's host, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Martha Stewart's best friend. Like, he's a very, very dynamic individual. 
Um, but he's not a great host. And I don't think Kelly Clarkson is that much either. I think they're both, uh, they are both too much their own artists yeah. in order to, and we covered this a little bit yeah, last sure. time. Yeah, I'm trying to think of who would be a great replacement, but it's a hard thing to to come up with something for because you know because you need someone who's not too strong. Well, a strong personality, but not that's like why a. We need to find the American Graham Norton. Is yeah. what we need. I don't know. I don't know who that is. Maybe really. Jimmy Fallon. It's a no. You know the you know it comes back to that uh, German word for a punchable face. This show is like most of the people who <laughs> who fall in who become famous in America are just way too punchable. You know, yeah, it's really hard to come up with someone that you don't just have some like low level like seething hatred for. You know, you need somebody with charisma, but also you know, uh. Some like uh you know unassumingness Without... almost you know you need some some level of unassumingness right? Huh? Does anybody stick out in your mind? No. Who's your dream cast? Absolutely nobody. I I don't spend that much time thinking about different celebrities, so I I don't think anyone would <laughs> would come to me. But I'll, I'll think about it. Maybe we'll talk about it next. Yeah, next, uh, maybe we will. Episode. Uh, so I actually did watch the the semi finalist part one, which I don't know if that means that's half of them, or that's all the songs that are left yes. now. Can you explain it to me? So there are um, there, I believe uh, uh, they split the semi finals into two parts because there are, I believe, twenty two semi finalists. Okay, so I only saw half um, of the semi. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, so. Um, <laughs> Woe betide you, because I have seen them all, <laughs> and I will destroy you with trivia. I think. Um, I think that probably in America, this idea of people watching the same song again each week is a pretty hard sell. I wonder how they're doing. Oh yeah. You know, ratings wise. That's a very interesting point. Um, and in Europe, it's a little bit. I've never been to Europe, so I don't know how Europeans consume Eurovision. But from all of the, I think, uh, I think from what I hear from I most, follow, from what I hear from most uh, Europeans I talk to, they just don't like. I don't know who is watching Eurovision. I think it's just us, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I do love it, though. I do. I do Wonderful. enjoy. It, and a lot of that is because I just love arbitrary competition. Yeah, it's sure. It's just perfect. Yeah, wonderful. Location based competition. The more pointless it is, the better. You know, it's like the lower the yeah. stakes, the the more fun it is, right? Now, I I I don't know if you can tell from my accent, people, but I am from Michigan, uh, and I'm a football fan, which means I grew up with a lot of disappointment as far as um, regional competitions go now are you a the detroit lions yeah i was gonna ask are you historically are you a as far as college football goes are you a green michigan or are you a blue and yellow michigan person (laughs) my girlfriend is a green raised green you're also green michigan i was raised green and white Mm. for sure blue and yellow hats man they're so nice though (laughs) they are nice and i will say the blue and yellow hospital is an 
A-OK Hospital, and I appreciate all of their cancer treatments. There you but go. Uh, I was raised blue. I was raised green and white. A lot of like uh, uh, that said. Tackle therapy in the hospital. <laughs> that said, the NFL um, uh, has the Detroit Lions, and so if you wanted to be a football fan, an NFL fan, uh, growing up in Michigan, you had to learn to deal with a lot of disappointment. Yeah. Right. Which is why I'm so freaking thrilled that uh, in the American Song Competition, um, one of the five semifinalists that were chosen by the jury, Michigan. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I did not dislike her song. I, I think there's a hilarious amount of breathiness to it. It's like she's right. It's like <laughs> she's your mom trying to tell the mic she loves it. She's just right there like... <sighs> Like she's like a she's like a nineties uh like a monster or alien from a from a, like a horror movie, you know. And oh, she's the youngest person in the competition. Uh, Ada Leanne is. Uh, so it might be just a thing that she's uh she's. No, it's great to learn Keep doing it. It's yeah. iconic. Yeah, and I love the homecoming dress. Like I did not. Know I've seen all. everybody wear that homecoming dress. It's it's. <laughs> Very, very um, nostalgic for me. So I, I more or less liked her. Uh, so the ones that I, the ones that I heard also, uh, I did hear the the boot goofing song. I heard uh, yeah, <laughs> Sparrow by Jordan Smith. I heard um, mm-hmm. Feel the Love by Riker Lynch. I heard Fly by Mari. Uh, A bit of both by Alan Stone. Uh, the difference by oh. Knee slash Co. Uh, uh, let's see. Hold on too long by Houston. Uh, Fire it up by Jonah Prill, and the Michigan song and Shameless by Jared Lee. Wonderland by Alexa. Mm-hmm. So I I liked about three songs. Any idea? <laughs> Any you want to guess one of them? <laughs> um, I. Okay, so if you liked about three songs, and Michigan wasn't one of them, yeah, I wouldn't say I disliked it. I I thought it was pretty good, but it wasn't one of my. Oh, this mm. is amazing. Uh, my instinct is that you liked um, Massachusetts, Jared Lee. Let me see. No, not at all. <laughs> nope, not at all. No. Uh, okay. Uh, did you like Houston? Because that was a little bit... Yeah, I liked Houston. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I love a good, sad, depressing song. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) And this is my pick for uh, karaoke, actually. I I would sing this song at karaoke because I get real... I get real depressive when I get drunk and I just want to, like, sing something really sad at karaoke. I love doing it. (laughs) So, yeah, no, I, I, I... Picked out a couple of American situations uh, to uh, so that we could pick out like the most, the best song for these American situations. The situations I picked were uh, the best karaoke song for us, uh, the mowing the lawn song, and the song that you're gonna put on at the party. Sure, yeah, and so so sorry to spoil it with the karaoke, but no, there's no, another dude. there's another song I also like for karaoke, and that's the uh, the Nico song. Uh, just because, you know, it's so hard to get a good duet for karaoke. This one sounds yeah. pretty easy, you know. Um, 
I also like it because it also sounds very depressing. Like they're very, you know, even better than depressed is depressed about a relationship. That's that's the that's the sweet spot right there. <laughs> like one of my favorite songs is this uh, Mountain Goats song called "No Children," where he just like uh, he's just singing about how much uh, he and his wife hate each other and want to get a divorce. It's so good. What? So that's my karaoke for sure. What what about you? What would you karaoke? Our karaoke strategies are very, very different. <laughs> well, I mean, to me, it's like, obviously you want something easy to sing. And you want something very emotionally powerful because you want to really feel it. You know, you want to really mm. feel that you're doing karaoke in front of people. And that's why, so just for context what is your go-to karaoke song outside of the american song contest well honestly outside of this uh i usually sing drake <laughs> i usually sing some like rap song that <laughs> i have no ability to <laughs> sing uh which is why they usually don't call on me after the first time <laughs> whenever, I, whenever i'm at karaoke love singing drake i don't know why he's just so good oh. again just so he's sad you know he's a sad guy really emotional <laughs> He's an Fantastic. emotional guy. Yeah. yeah. How about yeah. you? What's your go-to outside of a mirror vision? Um, one hundred percent the Monster Mash. <laughs> it's such a long I... song, though. Wow, you're really putting yourself on stage for a while. Oh yeah, no, and I do all the voices and I do all of the sound effects. Ah, rah, rah. <laughs> Great. Uh, I Impressive. I uh, do the dance as well. Uh, it's it's a party and. Uh, they do usually call me up afterwards, and my encore is always uh, the Monster Mash. Uh-huh, wow. <laughs> Listeners, sign up for our Patreon to hear uh, Hannah's track, The Monster Mash. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... That said, my yeah. my uh, American Song Contest karaoke song, I'm going Georgia, DIY. I think, unfortunately, that's not one of the ones I heard. Can you describe it? Uh, Stella Cole, um, DIY, 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 don't you get off your ass and fix yourself? I can't do it. Okay, so, yeah, yeah, I can guess that for you. It's kind of this poppy, like, uh, self-care, like, uh, (laughs) self-positivity song, yeah. Like, I was thinking also, you probably like that, uh... pun aspect to it, and it's, it's, it's a fun listen. Yeah. Like, I was thinking you probably also like that song fly by mari fly was very good yeah. fly was very good i i uh tend to avoid like really emotional karaoke songs <laughs> because when i drink i cry a lot and i just don't want to be up in front of 20 whole people just like <laughs> really if not if not then then when you know it's like yeah <laughs> If, if there's a Ideally, time and a place never. for that, then that is it. That is the time and the place. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so karaoke. How about mowing the lawn? What would you listen to? For mowing the lawn, I went with the American Samoa Full Circle. Mm, didn't hear that either. I thought that that was a real danceable song. Okay. I thought that that was... Um, uh, a lot of it, it put me in the mood for sunshine it put me in the mood for um uh you know getting stuff done chores mm-hmm. uh basically it's a it's a good um workout song i think cool what about you uh i decided on 
new boot goofing seems kind of obvious choice but you know because you can kind of like wiggle your boots around as you're <laughs> walking and mowing the lawn and also i really hated that song so i thought i also really hate mowing the lawn so like just really you know just like <laughs> just like get me in that like hate uh, just like you know do something angrily mode you know i'm so baffled that new boot goofing made it to the semifinals yeah. terrible terrible song but you know, it's it's Go kind of the cut. spirit of Eurovision, right? It should be something kind of absurd and True. ridiculous and barely listenable. So if it wins the whole thing, then it's kind of you know kind of in line. They've done it, you know. That's very true. That's very very true. So what song are you bringing to the party, Russ? I'm actually bringing the Michigan song. I'm gonna bring uh, Natalie. I just hey. think like it really made me nostalgic for like. Uh, as it was, I guess. And it made me nostalgic for, like, <laughs> not even my own uh, teenage or partying days, but, like, when I was a kid and an early teen, you know, you watch TV and it was all about, like, teens going to parties. And it was also always, like, a very emotionally charged, very, like, weirdly somber affair, <laughs> you know, where it's like, everyone's partying technically, they're all there, they're they're making the woo noises and everything, but people are really, <laughs> people are really, like, feeling some really heavy angst about it, you know, this, this is like... It feels like everybody in this room is working through some shit. Yeah, yeah, totally, which of course is exactly <laughs> what it is to be a teenager and even an adult generally. Um, but yeah, I really, I don't know what this song is about, but I really got that feeling that it was about that. So, so yeah. Okay. Good party song. Okay. Really bring that party down to a manageable level of excitement, <laughs> which is what I always want when I go to a party. So for the party song for me, um, I, I did feel like I had to put in an honorable mention because... Uh, Florida did not make it to the semifinals, but Flirt by Ali Zabala, I believe, is an awesome party bop. Sounds that fun. I, I have a lot of fun with. Who knows more um, about partying than Florida? That's, that's they gotta right? be. Yeah, it's well, gotta be will... the party song. Yeah. Um, uh, so Florida's my honorable mention, but uh, my choice for at the party is Puerto Rico's Loco Loco. By uh, Christian Pagan. Okay, sounds good too. Yeah. So, let's see, let me just run through a few uh, interesting words real quick. Um, connected to the American Song Song Contest, in that, of course, normally we're listening to Eurovision songs. Uh, so I thought I would look at some words from some other languages that came into English that maybe we don't really notice that they're from another language right so um Ooh, okay just gonna run through them really quick though actually so um we get the word renaissance actually from french which is a surprising uh direction for it to take you know because i think we mostly associate Ooh. the renaissance with italian but no they they don't use this word there they use it uh in french what's the italian word for renaissance uh, probably something like renaissance yeah, <laughs> sounds right. <laughs> uh, from German, we get the word waltz, which again, I one, I, I didn't really think of it uh, as a word from any particular language root. And two, I, I don't really associate Germans with waltzing. Mm. I guess maybe they had their day, you know. 
more like um, global domination is what I would associate Germans with. Yeah, I mean, like, maybe if they, like, uh, try to dominate the world through dance, maybe they'll have more uh, success. Austrians, I definitely associate Austrians with waltzing. Really? Why? Yeah. Are they the cloggers? Um, <laughs> Who clogs? The Who Austrians? has clogs? You know? No, no, uh, your Mozart, your Beethoven. Oh, your, sure, uh, your, yeah. Uh, yeah, Vienna. Sure. And they write waltzes. So it's the it's the musical waltz, not the dancing waltz, I guess. That this word originally. Yeah. Ah, so interesting. I see. Um Plaza actually originally came from Spanish, right? This is just their word for like city center or place. I was gonna say Italy to and I was gonna look stupid. <laughs> yeah, I mean honestly I don't know if I've ever been in a plaza in my whole life i think in america usually it's just part of a mall or something right <laughs> <laughs> yeah american plazas don't have that romantic connotation like you're walking along uh like bricks and suddenly a cloud of pigeons flies in front of you like, that's what i picture when i see the word plaza yeah it's funny right how <laughs> the context creates our expectations right if you're in europe and if you're in Europe, you're really like rubbing your hands together, ready to see this plaza. In America, you're like, ah, oh, man, it's at the plaza. Come on. <laughs> Mom, pick me up. I'm at the plaza. Yeah, yeah. The, the word uh, moped comes from Swedish. And it's actually a combination of their word for motor, which is motor, and their word for pedal, which is pedalair in, in Swedish. So oh. moped means a, a motored thing with pedals originally it's a bit different from what we have huh. today i guess they have pedals on them you just you're not cranking them around you're just pushing them although that's a very unfortunate um prefix to hold on to like ped is also pedophile oh, pedicure yeah. Pedo sure right yeah of course we also we we see it a lot right that's uh ped for foot right pedometer podiatrist mm -hmm. Uh, pediatrician coming more from the pedo for child version, right? Yeah. Word for robot. Moped. Mobile pedo... Uh, uh, <laughs> Mo mobile pedophile. Moped. Yeah, I, I, I forgot the word for child doctor. <laughs> okay, so... so pediatrician. Mo pediatrician. Mobile pediatrician. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. Uh, the word robot, do you know where this comes from? Ooh, where's robot come from? Uh, it's actually from Czech, the Czech language. So there was a very oh, early really? play in, in um, I think, the the first decade of the 20th century, so around 1910 or so, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And this play was kind of a science fiction play. They had this idea of an automaton. They called it a robot. And so that was it. Do you have any idea what, what it combines or what, what uh, robot... Like, like what is, is the like root kind boat? of like? How did it come from yeah. there to there? I don't know. Let, let's where check. Where does bot come yeah. from? Where does roaming? Ah, yeah. Uh, work. So a robot work. would be kind of like a worker, right? Huh. Well, that's a very deterministic. Pretty way general, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um. So the word avast. Uh, this uh, like oh, pirate speed, yeah, totally. Uh, this comes from Dutch, so in the, around the 17th century, so probably Dutch East Indies 
company days, you know, uh-huh. where they were in charge of the seas. Uh, the original form was something more like Huvas, uh, which meant something a bit like hold fast, right? As in fast as in steady, oh. right? So you can kind of even hear the, the similarity there. Not surprising because Dutch and English are kind of similar languages. Nice. Uh, the other particularly interesting one I found here, uh, coach, as in uh, both the coach that might coach a team or the coach of uh, drawn by a horse. It's actually a Hungarian mm-hmm. word. Uh, it's named after a village where that type of vehicle was invented. Right? So actually oh, interesting really? to know that it's this a... like horse-drawn coach came from Hungary. And uh, also our word comes from that. Right, And even this word... Uh, coach as in to coach a team it's actually derived from that because it's this idea of like driving or pulling the team right leading the team in some way as you would a coach that is so interesting i didn't realize that it was a that it was a geographic word yeah yeah wild wild you you look at it it doesn't look like it's from a, another place at all right it looks pretty english no. yeah <laughs> okay well i think that's plenty for now uh we'll go ahead and wrap up there uh catch us next time and we'll talk about something else i have a song in mind but uh, sometimes we change it so uh we won't tease it or anything thanks guys thanks guys for listening thank you so much have a wonderful day